expressed in the following are those of its participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the producers and the Six Talk Podcast Network. Also, the following contains mature material and mild language, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Discretion is advised. Writer and translator Matt Alt is a name that a good segment of English-speaking fandom would be familiar with in some form. If it isn't the name itself, chances are you've played a game he's had a hand in translating, including various Gundam games, Strider, Lost Planet 3, and Team Ninja games such as Neo, Dead or Alive, and Ninja Gaiden, and also Lunar Silver Star Story. Over the last 15 years, he has written or co-written a number of books on Japanese pop culture, including the Attack Trilogy, Hello, Please, with his wife, Hiroko Yoda, Super Number One Robot, and The Secret Lives of Emoji, along with a number of translations in that space. And if that's not enough, he has also been a TV presenter as well. Many will probably recognize Mr. Alt as the co-host of the NHK World Program Japanology Plus over the last five years. His latest book, Pure Invention, How Japan's Pop Culture Conquered the World, can best be described as a cultural investigation through stories, events, products, and various points in post-war history to help understand the point of the title. Matt Alt joins us from his home in Tokyo, and I know it's just after 8.45 there in the morning. Good morning to you, Mr. Good morning. How are you? Very well. Uh, as I said, this is a real honor to finally get a chance to talk to you. Uh, we've been in touch since August. And <laughs> yes, we've been kind of trying to make the schedules work, haven't we? <laughs> yes, and it, it never totally worked out because I want to take some time to read your book. And then well, you went you. on that, went on various other podcasts and uh, other online forms to uh, help promote the book and yes. other other talks, which were which were. Wonderful to watch, by the way. Oh, thank you. And I will say, and this is just as a as a slight choke, you are the first NHK World personality I have talked with. It is sort of on this podcast's bucket list to be able to talk to as many NHK World personalities. Uh, I think you are were number three on my list uh, <laughs> behind Peter Barakan and Akin Shibuya. Oh, so. Peter! Yes, Peter. I. Uh... Peter, my uh, who, who is the the real uh, uh, the 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 power, the driving force between uh, behind Japanology Plus. It's always a pleasure to work with him. He, that's an interesting show. When I first talked about watching NHK World back a number of years ago, I pointed out two shows that were very similar yet very different. That it was Japanology and then Cool Japan. Right and. Cool Japan had this shock and awe feel to it mm -hmm. because it just had a habit of putting something in your face and watching the reactions of people who saw it. It felt maybe in some ways it felt like a typical Japanese show, at least as, as sure it's become stereotypical to many of us here in the West. But Japanology had a more BBC feel to it, and it kind of helped I, with Peter Barakon and Emma right. Howard narrating. I see what you mean. I see what you mean. Yeah, you know, it's it's a. Uh... It definitely is a more deliberately more cerebral kind of show. And I, I think they actually brought me on to try to kind of balance it a little bit by adding, injecting a little bit of 
I mean, I'm, I'm more hyperactive than, than Peter. It's just, it's just a fact. Um, <laughs> it, it just is. And, and that's not any, you know, I don't make any value judgment there. It's just, it's just how it is. And so, you know, Peter will be sitting in, in this kind of quiet environment, for instance, talking to some expert about rescue teams and like the fire department and police departments in Japan. And then like they'll cut and they're like throwing me out of a helicopter. Um, that's like my to make you look a little bit silly at times. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, you know, a lot of people get, a lot of people are, are kind of mistaken in that they think that I'm like kind of forcing it or that I'm, I'm kind of, you know, deliberately trying to craft a character. And I mean, like when you're on camera or you're on mic or whatever, you, you do tend to kind of, you know, you're not as, it's not like you're just talking with friends, of course. So there is a kind of pre- presentation there, but um, I'm, I'm thrown into situations on that show that I know nothing about. It's not like, you know, Matt, tell us about your book or, you know, what are your interests? It's not about me. It's like, it's, it's about the, the, the kind of topic that's being covered. So if we're talking about, I don't, bridge cleaning crews or something like that. That was one thing we did. It's, I don't know the first thing about that. So I'm like, whoa, what? Hey, uh, okay. You know, I'm just kind of stumbling through it just like the viewer would be. And so suddenly when you find yourself on top of a, you know, a bridge span, you know, hundreds of feet over the water, of course, you're going to get kind of hyperactive or freaked out or something like that. So it's, <laughs> but it's cool. I mean, it's, it's thrown me into so many, Japanology Plus threw me into so many different situations that, um, I just, you know, normal people don't get to experience. And I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, I have a lot of fun watching it. It's one of, it is one of the go-to shows I do watch these days on, uh, on NHK World. Yeah, it's, uh, well, thank you for doing that. I, it's, it's been kind of um, on hiatus a little bit because of, obviously, because of COVID-19, they haven't been able to really get out and film. And I took a kind of break from the show this year because I was anticipating, uh, you know, promoting my new book, uh, Pure Invention. But then as, you know, uh, fate would have it, COVID-19 swept the world and everybody got kind of locked down. So both the show went on hiatus and I didn't go anywhere. And and that's just kind of how it goes. Cool. Okay. So I'm going to bring up another name that uh, we both admire. All three of us actually have a lot of admiration for. Okay. Um, I first heard about this book uh, through both Facebook and Twitter posts by Fred Schott. He ah. spent time actually pitching the book. And I remembered, I recognized your name from the show. And I asked Fred, um, because I do talk with him every so often. And I do text mm-hmm. him since uh, our interview at Anime North. And I'll tell you a quick aside about that. I text him saying, you know, you know Matt well. And he said, yes, really nice guy. And I asked him, because I was considering maybe uh, I would try and contact you and ha- ask you to do the show sometime because the, the, I read the subject matter of the book and I thought this could be something I could really get into. And Fred just said, he's a really nice guy. You should ask him to do your show <laughs> without me asking if, if it's okay to ask you. Right, right, right. And that's where it really started. And then I mentioned your, you know, I had to figure out a way to eventually um, approach you. But uh, I made it a point to um, buy the book. My uh, my sisters gave me a, uh, a gift card to to Indigo, the bookstore here in uh, Canada, and I used that to help me pay for the for right. the book. And I had it, and we ha- I had it, got it in my hands around my birthday, actually, and then thumb through it a little bit, and then contact you for the first time and that's sort of how it went. Well, I'm glad uh, I'm glad Fred convinced you. Uh, Fred is a great guy. We. Uh... 
I mean, I grew up reading his books. I, I remember finding Manga Manga, uh, the world of Japanese comics, on the bookshelf in my high school library of all places. And wow. uh, just just being kind of obsessed with it because, you know, I grew up during a period of time when not a lot of stuff was available on the American marketplace, North American marketplace imported from Japan. You were just starting to get the kind of dark horror studio Proteus stuff from, you know, in, in, in form translated manga, you know, Marvel's uh, Akira. But yes. it wasn't like it is now where you have just, you know, you can stream anything anytime, almost in real time with it coming out of Japan. It, and so, yeah, Fred's work was just like a life preserver for those of us who kind of had this idea Japan's Japanese like illustrated entertainment and Japanese pop culture was cool, but didn't really have any way because there's no Internet back then either. Oh, you're right. Um, you know, so it was it was really it was it was a huge uh, uh, a boon to all of us. And that's, uh, yeah, those were early exposures. Oh, yeah. yeah for sure. just, the other thing I remember you said, Matt, uh, sorry to step in. My, no, no. James Austin uh, speaking now. But I know in the book and in previous things, you said uh, your high school was one of the few in the States that you could learn Japanese. Yeah. Yeah, and that was, was an interesting experience because a lot of us now, it's so ubiquitous. People say, sure. oh, I can go to JET or something like that yep. to go over and teach English or learn Japanese through different uh, Japan Foundation courses and stuff like that across North America and the world. So it's very interesting how it's changed so much, right, since the 80s yeah. and I mean, 90s. I, I knew I was lucky, but like I didn't know how lucky I was. And uh it was a great experience. We had great teachers there. Um, a lot of attention was paid to the program. So like, you know, it was like I write about in the book, you know, Samu Tezuka sent like a complete collection of his manga to the school for, yes. for to put in the classroom. Yeah. I mean, it was, it blew my mind. It was like, holy moly. Like, you know, when I, I, what's that? It was in the epilogue, right? Yes. Yes. It was. I yes, wrote about that correct. in the epilogue of the book. And it was, it's, you know, the teacher, he wrote a, he wrote a, a long letter to the, my teacher who had basically no idea what manga was, because, <laughs> you know, she, had, she had learned Japanese in the military during world war two, you know, and uh, for her, Japanese pop culture was just something that wasn't on her. Of course she knew about like, you know, Akira Kurosawa and things like that, but you know, she, she just wasn't on her radar. And uh, I was like, wow, Osama Tezuka is going to come to visit. And uh, unfortunately, as as uh, we all know, he he passed away in 1989. That was, you know, we got the box, I guess, in 1988 or so. And uh, it was a shame. I never did get to meet him. I would have, that would have been amazing. And uh, and that would have been another connection to Fred. And Fred Schott was his interpreter for so long. Right. Yeah, and Fred had some incredible stories. I remember he told us, Mike, about his experiences with uh, Tezuka and many other creators, Monkey Punch and other ones. But I remember the Tezuka one that sticks out for me that he told the story of at Anime North, Mike, uh, you probably remember it is them being in an airport. And I'm not sure if it was in the West Coast or whatever in the States. And they maybe they were supposed to go to Canada or somewhere, but they missed the flight because they got into such a discussion. And then he just <laughs> yes, yes. brushed it off and said, oh, oh don't man. worry about it. We'll just get the next player sign. Wow. I kind of felt. It, he felt guilty about it. But guilty, I, I remember. And no one came up to tell them. <laughs> I, uh, I interviewed Fred. I didn't end up using it, much of it in the book because I just ended up relying on other sources. But I actually interviewed Fred about, about Tezuka. And I remember just the one thing that sticks out is him saying that Tezuka was like the, the first and only genius that he ever felt that he had known like somebody who actually <laughs> met the definition of like a genius like a kind of polymathic 
you know, just constantly intellectually curious and and supremely talented, uh, creatively, obviously, person. And that was really interesting to hear that from somebody like Fred. Um, and, you know, just again, I was, you know, it was, it was cool, very cool to talk to Fred about that, but also kind of sad. I was like, man, I came so close and to meeting him. And it was all accounts. Yeah, you yeah. were thinking that and- too, weren't you, Mike? Uh, that, what was it? Uh, Fred said that uh, Tezuka was also using him and stuff like that, seeing what it's like on the other side in the West sure. and stuff like that and getting ideas from him, I believe. So it was yeah, interesting yeah. that back and forth, I thought. Yeah, well, Tezuka is, he was a very smart guy. So, like, you know, it, it, it's obvious that. Yeah, and I don't think he was like using Fred in a in a bad way, but he was certainly uh, uh, you know watching and and trying to figure out because he always wanted to appeal to the West. You know, Astro Boy, he was he was very very excited and happy when Astro Boy was broadcast in in the states in 1960. I believe it was four. Um, I forget on top of my head. Yeah, it's in it's in the book. I uh, forget the exact year, but that was a huge source, and like it beat the Mickey Mouse Club in ratings on on most of the stations it was on, and that was to him like a huge uh, source of pride. So I'm sure <laughs> he was constantly picking Fred's brain about things that would sell abroad. Um, there's actually a really interesting story, uh, and it came from Tezuka's own autobiography uh, that I read for the as one of the sources for the book where. Uh, Stanley Kubrick sent Tezuka a mail, like a letter in the mail to Japan after he saw Astro Boy and asked Tezuka to collaborate on doing designs for 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah, and that it's just, was a yeah. I remember that, yeah. That so mind-blowing to imagine what that show, what that film would have looked like with Tezuka's sensibilities instead of, I mean, it's, I love 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's an amazing film. It's, it's actually, Tezuka, I, as much as I love Tezuka, his style is, is very, it's kind goofy isn't the word I'd use, but it's very rounded and almost kawaii. And it's very difficult for me to reconcile what that would have looked like in, in like, you know, Kubrick has this kind of brutalist aesthetic. Like, oh, yes. You know, so, like, Monolith being a punchline in the last couple of weeks with uh, with one being found in the Utah desert and then suddenly taken Right, away. yes. Yes, the monoliths, exactly. So. Um, yes. So, uh, yeah, so that was any, – we were talking about my high school. Yeah, I was just very lucky to have that Japanese program and very lucky to have access to things like Fred Schott's books and, and Tezuka's books. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's kind of – that started my sort of lifelong uh, fascination uh, with with – things Japanese and I'm probably one of the few people in the world who is actually using something they studied in high school in their adult life (laughs) (laughs) in a round in its own quirky little way right in an unexpected way to be honest yes yes although you know to be brutally honest like my life as a as a you know 40s 40 something year old is not all that different from my life as like a 14 year old you know better I'm not much younger than you Oh, we see, sure. this is this is the thing. I mean, like, look at like it, it's kind of the way of modern society that we hold on to the things that moved us as especially as as, you know, young adults. And, uh, you know, when I was in high school, you, this is in the 80s. You had to hide the fact that you were reading comic books from other people. Like you would have been seen as a nerd or like you would have been like, you know, roughed up behind the bleachers after school or something if the jocks had found out that you were into Batman or whatever. And now it's like, you know, the coolest thing in the world for I'm sure for high school kids is to be into Iron Man or Batman or whatever it is and and adults, too. And that kind of like shift in the the kind of I, I, I hesitate to call it kidification you know, of, of adult tastes. 
because I don't like to place, you know, value judgments on the entertainment that people like and, and for better or for worse, saying something is childish is a value judgment. Um, but that kind of kidification of tastes, I think, is something that Japan really anticipated like a decade or two before it happened in the West. And that's part of the reason people like you and me and a lot of other people were drawn to its uh, entertainment and pop culture in general. I can safely say, but like my own familiarity, strangely, I would have seen Force 5 when I was younger. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Like uh, living in Toronto, we were one of the few markets that actually showed it. Oh, wow. Because it was shown in limited markets. and We only had videotapes in the States. God, I'm so jealous. As it was aired. Oh, and, man. And we also saw a dub version of Star Blazers. Right. Then too, right. Which aired, which aired here. Yeah, we had and, that in the States, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I and I have a vague memory of it, but I remember seeing episodes of Mito, uh, Mito Kumon. Oh wow! Believe wow. it or not, and and I mentioned this to my uh, Japanese friends, and they completely uh, look surprised when I tell them that fact. But yeah, there yeah. was there was yeah. a multicultural station. Um, it's now called Omni, but um, it used to be like a multicultural station that aired in different languages at various blocks of programming and their Japanese programming they actually showed they actually showed Mito Kumon in for in dubbed in one case and then there was another case they they'd show the odd uh the odd NHK 15 minute drama and this was oh, something interesting so I think interesting. it was Oshin, I think it was Oshin but um oh yeah that makes sense because that was like huge Oshin about the uh the little girl and the, mm-hmm. is it the Ed, what, was, what year is it said in the Edo era it's a period piece yes it is and that it, was it huge and, and her life and Mito and, Komon of course being the show about the shogun's mm-hmm. uh, uh what is he he's like the shogun's right-hand man who kind of goes uh like incognito Yes, yeah. incognito into the field, and then like you know solves crimes, and and by showing the shogun's crest at the end of every episode, it's like the and that show is yeah. so so influential in Japan. It actually influenced uh, at least one giant robot anime as well called Daioja, oh. but uh, which is an anime version of Mitokomon. So <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like hugely influential. That one. Yeah, well, it's amazing you got to see it. I mean, I never, I never saw that show until I came to Japan. I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly wasn't broadcasting. I just remember the vague, like watching a couple of episodes at the time on a Sunday afternoon. That's that's my, and and so I was, I was like probably no more than seven or eight at the time. Right. So, oh, and like that, that's my memories. And then you know things like Robotech started to come up, and I sort of got back into Robotech towards the end of high school. Read the read the novels and. Then, but at that point, I started to understand it was based off of something else. And mm-hmm. then throughout my university years, I pursued that, and that's where that started the chain reaction where we are now. No, was, we we were putting together the pieces too. I mean, Donkey Kong and like you know Hello Kitty, you know Voltron. We all had this kind of like inkling that these came from the same sort of wellspring, but you know there wasn't very much information out there to help you put it together at the time. And that's right. where it starts to get a little interesting. Uh, let me go back for just one second here because I, I have to bring this one up. And this is my th- a thank you to you. When Fred did the interview with us, and oh, and what, by the way, uh, just so you so you're aware of it, and some of the listeners are aware. Fred, I've known uh, Fred, and I I've, I've known Fred since '98 myself. Okay, and that's when he came to visit Anime North the first time. And it was a wonder, and there's a kind of a full circle moment in all of this. We we did Anime North back then. It was the second ever Anime North and did a panel together on history. 
the building that Anime North took place in that year is the Michener Institute. It's a medical school building that's associated with uh, the University Health Network in Toronto. It's, it's the major network of hospitals in downtown Toronto. It made news two weeks ago today because that's where the first COVID vaccines Ooh. were administered. It was wow. they were administered to, P, to personal support workers in that same building. Wow. In the gymnasium. The gymnasium where that took place was the site of the first vendor's room for Anime right, North. Right. Then. So that really it, is coming full circle, isn't it? it? It's a full circle thing. Now, my thank you comes from page 64 in Pure Invention because James told me, and I had to skip out on one of Fred's panels prematurely for something else. He showed a picture of. Naruhito, the uh, now emperor, wow. but as a little boy with his mother, the then crown princess, uh, Empress Michiko. Yes. There was a picture of him as a boy playing with an Astro Boy toy. Yes. And I, I so badly wanted to see that photo because I found it really fascinating because that took place, like, Anime North happened the same month that Naruhito was installed as emperor. Ah, yeah, 89. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so he, so he was already in the headlines by that point. And I would have been curious to see that photo. And he told us a story about the one time he met him. Ooh. So, oh yeah. Wow. And that was, uh, uh, because he met him for an award, but I had never seen the photo. I'd been dying to see the photo somewhere and you had a copy of it and you put it in the book. So thank you for putting that in there. Oh yeah. That was a, that was a great find. I mean, I had known, Naruhito is probably he, he, being born and, and raised when he was, you know, he was a, he was born around 1960, I guess mm -hmm. um, he or maybe in the late 50s. But I mean, he was raised yeah. in that same, you know, Japanese kind of, you know, rise of Japanese pop culture as any kid was in, the, in, in his era. And there's stories in the Japanese press of, of him buying like kaiju toys, you know, from Ultraman and stuff like that. And kaiju, you know, book he, he grew up. He was a little kid during the whole Ultraman kaiju boom. So yes. he's in a very real way, like the first pop cultural emperor. You know what I mean? Like he's somebody who you could have talked about Ultraman with. Yes, and he and he meant and he mentioned to um, Fred that he probably should give a reread of Tetsuo Atom at some point <laughs> later in the future. <laughs> well, now yeah, he's got plenty of time. Oh, he's retired now, so he's got no, plenty no, no, of time. That's Naruhito, not uh, not uh, Akihito. Akihito's the guy who's retired, right? Right. No, you're right. Yes, actually, yes. Oh, yes. Naruhito's the busier one. Yes. And what am I saying? Yes. He's I'm really sorry. Busy right yes, now. he's very busy now. Exactly. <laughs> and but he and yeah, and he's an interesting character because of his Western education now too. Him and um and Masako. Masako, uh, yes, Masako, yes, Masako, yes, Masako, yes, yes. Okay. Um. I guess we should talk about the book for a couple minutes. <laughs> sure. sure. I think it's par for the course for us, isn't it? Mike, it's like, oh boy. <laughs> well, no, the it's... book, the book is a product of its, of its, of its, you know, the culture and its era and stuff. So we should, we should well, give yeah. all of the actual pop culture it's due to. Oh no. The, and yeah. And well, first of all, this is like, this was, um, I knew pretty quickly, this would be an interesting read, but what I really, really enjoyed about this book you would put out something and then we'd veer away from it for a little bit, but because, but you put it out there because it had relevancy. And then later on, you'd somehow be able to tie it all back. Like everything 
every chapter joins together in, in a various form. That's what I quickly grew to like about this book for me. I mean, I had a great editor. Oh, that, that I, I had a great. Well, I had I. That, I mean, that, of course, I'm a great writer too. No, I'm just kidding. The I I, I actually had a really great editor who helped uh, guide me on a lot of thinking for the structure of the book. She is, um, uh, she she's a she's in her twenties and grew up. She was somebody who you didn't have to explain that Japanese pop culture was cool too. But okay. she was American, you know, because she grew up watching Sailor Moon and playing Pokemon. You know, she's she's of that generation. So, like, you know, it was interesting when we when I was pitching the book, you know, my agent and I went to New York City and we pitched the concept of the book to um, interested publishers. He, when he got interest from about 10 different publishers, this obviously is before COVID-19 and humanity wasn't living in its basement. But uh, we were, I flew out to New York and when we had a lot of meetings – and there was this, they would run this big range from, of ages and genders of people who we were meeting with. And, you know, some people, what, is Japan cool? Japan, does, there are people who are into Japan? Like, you know, if, if they're a boomer, all the way down to people like who eventually ended up becoming my editor, who you, that wasn't even on the table because it was understood that Japan was cool. And the great thing was that not only did I not have to explain to her that kind of fundamental thing, well, there's this thing called manga, you know, he didn't have to start from zero. But she wasn't an otaku, so she wouldn't like. There was no slack cut. There couldn't be any corners cut. I had to explain things very clearly in a way that somebody who didn't know manga would be able to understand it or make heads or tails of it. Hmm. And uh, so that was uh, like great guidance from her. And then it also helps. I'm not really. I'm not a journalist. I'm more of an essayist. And when okay, I can see. Yeah. When you when you write essays, it, it is it's it's much more about you know bam you bring something up in the front you veer off that and just like you said you kind of come but you you go into different directions that are all kind of thematically connected under whatever that uh, uh, initial anecdote or initial story or initial opening was and then you kind of you explore all these different threads and then tie them in a bow at the very end. No, I like um, it. I like it. I mean, that's sort of the way I try to explain things myself. Sure. I mean, James James can attest to this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I was thinking about the same thing where it definitely has that essay feel and it's great for those first time readers. I'm a student yeah. of history and I saw where you began and where you ended. But the thing I also like to look at the end of books is for you, you didn't have the footnotes, you had the end notes. Yes, the blind notes. Look at the end notes. If something picks my mind I, or piques the curiosity, right. I'm, like, I'm going to go and look back at that. Or it's interesting to see how many of the books I've already read and stuff like yeah. that, especially since I've done reading in the Japanese video game industry and stuff like that. And even some of the manga and anime side, uh, like stuff from Fred, for example, another yeah. author's. It's, it was really important to me that every assertion I made in the book was was backed up by something. And part of that was just because I wanted I, I wanted the book to be defensible. You know what I mean? I didn't want this to be like, well, it's just like your opinion, man. I wanted it to be like an Have actual work of, of scholarship in, in addition to being uh, something that was entertaining to read. But also because, you know, many of the times I would be chasing down a lead and find a book that didn't footnote its source and it would drive me crazy. Uh, it's like, well, so where did you get this fact from? You know, so I wanted it to be for anybody who was reading my book to when they saw something that grabbed their attention that they could flip to the back 
and see, oh, he's not just making this up. This actually came from a source. And that's especially and true. Like, because what I, type of source is that, right? Because I know you did many sources. You did in-person interviews. Sure, sure. So it's always interesting to see where everything comes from and how it all comes together. Yeah. As you said, not every author uh, is as uh, diligent with their sourcing and stuff like that, or people aren't as diligent looking, well, where did this come from? Where's the critical thinking, right? Right. Right. And, you know, there have actually been complaints like, man, why is there so many notes in the back? And I'm like, well, that's if you feel that way, the notes are obviously not for you. Please enjoy the the, the book, you know, for for what it is. I hate to tell you, but most university courses and when I was at the end of high school, they were very diligent about telling us about we were going to get a zero if we didn't have proper footnotes or proper endnotes in our essays or anything else. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I understand how people don't understand that because I've seen problems with people's before in even the university level. And it's kind of scratches your head where we've come, I guess, but maybe we're just getting old. Or it's just the internet, you know, like where you're, it's kind of a lot of, you know, a sound and fury signifying nothing. You're supposed to just get your opinion or, or, or your assertion out there and just kind of let it hang. Um, it's, it's sort of the way of the world these days. Um, for better or for worse, but uh, I didn't. I didn't want that to be what the book was about, so I was really, you know, you know, key to do that. And I also did not want to fetishize any of these individuals. Like I, I wanted to humanize them. So, like even somebody like Osamu Tezuka, who I Fred shot rightfully, I think calls a a genius. I wanted to portray that he's actually deeply insecure too, and and like having a very difficult time adapting his style when new forms of of, of manga in the form of gekiga and other uh, ex- forms of expression came out. And I, I don't really subscribe to the great man theory of history, which is the theory that basically one lone genius shifts the course of history. I always think it's part, you know, people are acting as part of their historical and cultural milieu. And there's always a lot of people involved in, in things. And, and there's always people in the back. Yes. And I really, and not only people in the back, in the front, like, you know, these are consumer products. So the way that, you know, we consume manga, the way that we consume anime or the Walkman or the Famicom Nintendo Entertainment System or the Game Boy or whatever, had as much of an effect on these products as their creation in a lot of ways. Okay. So, and that was something I really wanted to, to get into. And, and especially in the second part of the book, the focus shifts almost entirely from creators to the consumers, you know, with the, with the various products, actually I, almost things, of course, from the actual hard products, the toys and the Walkman, that, right. to actually the soft power and stuff like that and how that transitioned from almost the eighties and stuff like that and how it's changed now to the soft power. And they're trying to navigate how to use that soft power. And sometimes they haven't been exactly effective on the Japanese government side to exploit that. Right. Yeah. Well, the the whole, like there's nothing less cool than the government telling you it's cool, you (laughs) know, and and, you know, it's like your parents coming down like, Hey, check out this rock music. Isn't this awesome? You know, you're no like teenager is going to be like, wow, my parents have awesome taste, you know? And it's kind of, is a similar sort of thing with the government. And then that, added on top of that, that it's just this giant tax boondoggle and nobody is really quite sure, you know, what effect all of this promotion is having, but putting that all aside, and I actually, I, I should, I should state, I never use the words cool Japan even once in the book. Um, I think the Japanese government, whenever they see the Japanese translation, which is actually in progress right now, the Japanese version of the book is coming out in the spring in Japan. Um, <laughs> they're going to be like, wait, what? You didn't mention the Cool Japan program at all? And I'm like, no. 
because this is way more about people, consumers, than it is about governments. It's like, it wasn't, you can't manage soft power. Soft power is something that happens. It's like in the video game world, it's a buff. It is a passive advantage that happens to you. It's not something that you can kind of bestow upon yourself because it has to happen from a grassroots perspective. It has to, we think Japan is cool, not because the Japanese government spent a ton of money telling us it was cool. We thought Japan was cool because all of this random stuff that Japanese people created for themselves just so happened to appeal to us too. It wasn't even made for us. None of the stuff in Pure Invention was made for us. No, it started with themselves as yeah. the possible. Right. Which is what gives it its authenticity. It's what gives anime its authenticity and manga its authenticity. It's what gave the original Nintendo games their authenticity. We weren't being pandered to. We had to kind of discover it ourselves. And that is, that's really key. You know, if something is being forced down your throat, it's, you're, you're probably not going to find it really cool because you can't escape it. You know, the, the, the reason that anime and so many other Japanese cultural products become not just you know, uh, loved abroad, but are actually become identities for people abroad is, is specifically because you have to hunt them down and you have to make up your own narratives around them in a lot of ways. And yeah. so when you find other people who are into these things, it's like you found your tribe uh, in a way that just doesn't really happen with officially sanctioned things. You know what I'm saying? Yes. That's sort of how fandom has developed in North America. Right. And to me, it's, it, it this, this is part of the old school subtitled versus dub debate. Mm -hmm. I think people who are who subscribe to watching their Japanese their anime in Japanese language with subtitles are more into it and more defensive of it because they have to pay more attention to it. As yeah, watching. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's That's not, actually a really not, good point. It's not really passive. Like if you're hearing, if you're listening to it in your native language, it becomes more passive to you. So you and I know there have been talks about that, how it's even that has changed on the subtitles and how people translate. And I know yeah. Matt, you've probably seen that from the nineties from Lunar Silver Star, for example, mm -hmm. where that one was a working designs game with Vic Ireland and he was known for making his changes and putting things in. Yeah. And ten Vic. years later, Exceed came along and that same game, Lunar Silver Star, was done by them and they put in the more faithful translations. Sure like sure. that so it's definitely changed as the guy posts and more people are like hey i remember this kind of from my childhood i remember mario and i see as you said in the book it's that simplistic design and you talked about kawaii and stuff sure. like that that design the different signposts for males and females and stuff like that yeah and we come back and see and it's like i know that and then you explore it in a different medium and for us for me it was video games and then even the cartoons, as you explained in the thing, and even for some action figures, and then we come forward and we see the anime and the manga. And it's like, wait, I remember these signposts, even if they did change them and stuff like that. Right. Because, for example, the Nintendo games, I remember there were definitely changes made, but you can't just scrub the whole soul of a product or the oh, no. out the door. You know what I mean? No, no. And it's, you know, when I was a kid, when I was growing up on things like Anime Ego, that they were one of the first companies to release a translated uh, anime on videotape in the States. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I was a fundamentalist subtitle watcher. Um, and I believed that they were the more authentic way of consuming anime. And like when I would see like Voltron on TV or Robotech, I'd be like, oh man, this has been like overly, 
you know, change. This isn't, this isn't what I want. I want, I want it as close to the original as possible. So I get that, but you know, I became a translator and a localizer. It's how I make my living. You know, I studied Japanese for many years and, and, and have a lot of experience doing this under my belt. And now I know as somebody who actually produces the English versions of Japanese entertainment, that it's not nearly as clear cut as I once saw it, because even subtitles, you are so limited in the amount of text that you can fit in there. You are so, so limited. And you actually are losing a lot of nuance and flavor without even knowing it, especially if you don't speak any of the the, the language uh, and you're just relying 100% on the on the, the subtitles. So there's an actual argument to be made that anime and all sorts of entertainment to really enjoy them in the way that they're meant to be enjoyed. You do have to dub them because then you're not worried. You're not using this extra brain power to, to read subtitles and look what's going on on the screen at the same time. And you, you have to kind of fit it to what's going on on the screen. So it's just, it's, there's no speaking as somebody who has worked on subtitles and who has produced dubs. I can say with a hundred percent confidence that it's not the case that subtitles are more accurate or more authentic than dubs. It really depends on how well the dub is done or how well the subs are done. So it's a, that's a really interesting thing. But the fact that subs and dubs have become a kind of flashpoint, I mean, they always were for like nerds, you know, like who, like me Mm -hmm. and my friends back in the day, but now that they've become a flashpoint uh, among, you know, more, I, I guess you would say average gamers, people who aren't necessarily otaku, but are just like diehard gamers or who just consume anime content, like on the many streaming services available today, the fact it's become such a, a flashpoint shows how sophisticated uh, modern consumers have become. That they're demanding this kind of extra attention be paid to the stuff. Because when I when we were kids, as you know, like we didn't have any say in this. You know, you just turn on the TV one day, and all of a sudden, wait a second, Trans or Z? What is this? You know, Robotech. <laughs> I guess, as they say, sometimes the internet helps too, because I remember the last one where a company was raked over the coals. And ironically, it was one that was a very classic series from uh, Falcom, of course, East. Ah, and yes. I loved all the games all the way back to the Turbo Graphics, even though that's sure, yeah. me more a noob than anything else. Because remember, it went even further back because Michal uh, Falcom has pedigree in the PC space yes. for Japan, even though. They're now more with Sony for uh, right. how they do their games now, which is kind of a funny thing in itself where there was that PC gaming space in Japan way back yeah. when before they transformed into a more console and mobile uh, gaming community for Japan compared to the rest of the world. But anyway, for Falcom uh, East 8, they had brought it over uh, NISA America and they butchered uh, the translation so much they actually had to go back and thank right. God you can do patches now. They retranslate the whole game and they had to go back and redub quite sure. a few parts and stuff like that, which is almost unheard of. And yeah, it, it is watch. because it's expensive. It's extremely expensive. So, you know, to go back and redo it a second, you're basically paying twice. Yeah. You know? And <laughs> some yes. of that also, the reason why people were ticked off too is both of the CEOs for uh, in Japan of nis and then falcom they were friends and stuff like that so that's kind of how the deal of nisa uh-huh. uh, got uh, the falcom games like legend of heroes and the east games so they haven't made that mistake i think since east 8 they've been making sure to go over the games with a fine tooth comb for the legend of heroes and i'm sure east 9 which will be coming to our shore our shores uh, next year 
will be in better hands and stuff like that. But it's, it definitely shows you need to kind of respect the material and actually go over it in that it does take time, even though some people in the West really want it as soon as they can. And I think about and actually time, time, which equals money. Time is the number one uh, defining, you know, if you're asking what, what affects the quality of a localization or a translation the most, it's time. Uh, you know, how much time the translators are given. And also it is, it is a money issue because, you know, there's all sorts of, one of the, one of the, when I first started, when, when Hiroko and I, uh, and we run a company, as you know, called Alt Japan, which we founded uh, in the early 2000s. Um, when we first founded this company and we, when we were first working together as tra- at translators and localizers, you could count the number of full-time game localizers active in the world, JDE, JDE on, on two hands. I mean, there were so few of them. There's people like, you know, Ted Wolseley and like Alex Smith. Um, uh, you know, Jeremy Blaustein, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who did Metal Gear Solid and, and a bunch of other and games. Stature, I believe as well. Yeah. Vic Ireland was another one. Uh, although he was more of a rewriter than, than he was. Yeah, I was gonna say, he's more rewriting and stuff. But, like that. but still there were, there were very few. And, and even when we would go in and pitch our services to game companies, not there, there would be many companies who didn't know the word localization. And so, you know, it was, it was a kind of, it was a hard sell at first. Now there's like, it's, it's the stated goal of like half the kids coming out of college Japanese classes, they want to become localizers or or translators of of Japanese content. So the market's been flooded with, uh, with, with talent. And uh, as a game company, you are now tempted by these offers of, of like people who will be willing to work for almost nothing. Yeah, versus autumn, right? Yeah, or versus versus companies that have a lot of experience and won't do it for less than whatever this is. And unfortunately, translation and localization is still viewed as a kind of commodity in the entertainment world. Because to be brutally honest, it's very difficult to everybody agrees that a great translation is better than a good translation. And a good translation is better than a bad translation. Like everybody agrees on this. But the, it's very difficult to quantify these things. And it's especially difficult to quantify what is the the effect on the bottom line of a great translation versus a simply adequate one, you know, or even an adequate one versus a bad one, because there's cases of games like, for instance, Resident Evil series, which has really wonky translation, especially in its earliest incarnations and went on to sell millions of copies. So um, it's, it's a, it's a tough space to be working in. And there's a lot of temptation for companies to go with the lowest bidder or the cheapest company. And sometimes, sometimes it shows, but one thing I really want to be clear about is like localizers and localization, especially to a certain number of, of game and anime people is, is a bad word. And it shouldn't be because localization is not about making random willy nilly changes to the content. Localization is about working with the stakeholders and the creators to create something that translates their vision into another language so it can be consumed there in the same way it was intended to be consumed in its home country. And to be honest, you have to make some changes sometimes, but you never make those changes without the creator's consent. So the, the localizers are not the bad guys. We are just the tools of the creators to get their vision uh, translated, literally and, and metaphorically. Uh, basically having people understand the context, I guess. Yes. That's the way we, I, I... We're just, we're cogs in a machine, you know, uh, and, and there's all, I remember when we were working on Doraemon, 
which is like Japan's most beloved uh, manga oh, yes. and anime series. Hiroko and I translated with their or company, I should say, translated all 15,000 pages of that manga in English and in, into English. And it's available oh. in the Kindle store. And now um, it's only as an ebook, uh, but you can get it on the Kindle store. And at the same time that was happening, we were in conversations with uh, uh, not sometime very early on direct, but mainly indirect with the anime production company in, in uh, North America that was producing the, the, the animated Doraemon that went on the Disney Channel. I think it was Disney FX or something. This is before Disney Plus. Whoa. And when that show, because we had to, we had to kind of line up what we were going to call Doraemon's gadgets and things like that, and they they made some changes to character names uh, that we ended up keeping closer to the Japanese and the manga form for various reasons. It wasn't like that they made a bad choice; it was just they had other choices. But they were like pilloried because of all these changes that were made to the cartoon. Uh, for broadcast in North America, and what a lot of the critics didn't understand was that when you're make when you're broadcasting a cartoon for kids, like Doraemon was not aimed at otaku; it was aimed at like five to ten year olds. You, you literally have to. There's things in the original Doraemon you literally cannot show on North American TV. You can't show anything that looks like medicine. You can't show any kind of violence. You can't show this. You can't show that. So there's that kind of localization too, where laws like literal broadcast rules compel you to make changes that you might not even want to. So sort of like the, sort of like the cigarette, I suppose. Yeah. All sorts of things like that. Like the, one of the big ones was they couldn't even show band-aids um, because really? they didn't want, yeah, you don't want kids you know, like digging through a medicine cabinet for band-aids to kind of recreate whatever scene they saw on TV. And then suddenly like coming across mom's Oxycontin, you know, like, or whatever. Oh, right. Funny because we think of that too. It's like power Rangers. Remember the uproar with it in the early nineties. Yeah. And then I think of uh, two in the late nights, it was fun for us up here. They couldn't see it in the States, but we saw the uncut Escaflone on YTV in the mm -hmm. evenings, but <clears> Fox, did on their kids block every Saturday morning, a uh, cut version of Escaflone. So it was interesting right. to see the cuts they made between the two. And it was always fun looking at that because it's like, ah, oh, that's weird. It's like, this is interesting. Sure. Sure. And like, but it's very most people were looking at not in that way, but it was interesting when you look at them both. Yeah, of okay. course. And as a consumer, and especially as a sophisticated consumer, who is somebody who's sophisticated enough to tell the difference between a cut and an uncut version of a show, which is a very high degree of sophistication for a viewer, like most it, it, that that would not be the way most people watch that show. That's how diehard fans watch that show. Um, mm -hmm. It can be easy to get like your feathers ruffled, like this is so uncool. Why would they do this? And like, you know, most people who work in the translation, localization, dubbing, you know, anime production spaces are as into anime as you are or as into anime or games as you are. And their hands are often tied by some invisible thing that you don't know about. But it's maybe it's company politics. Maybe it's, you know, some kind of broadcast regulation. Maybe there's just some jerk at the you know channel where it's being brought. You don't know. You don't know what it is. So whenever I see, you know, Twitter uh, you know, Twitter folk getting their pitchforks out against some, you know, poor <laughs> translator or localizer. I, I just like, guys, like you're, you're don't kill the messenger, man. Like the, the localizer and the translator is not the one who, who is, is making the final decisions on any big cut or change has to be approved by the, the creator. And you would be like a lot of consumers in the States would be shocked at how much creators want their stuff to be changed to sell to a mainstream, not fan, mainstream audience abroad.
Like, yeah, sure. No. Change the gender of that. Oh, sure. Change it. You know, like, let's or just, this let's, is the title we're going to have, or these are the character names. It's like, yeah, I mean, uh, character or names, or whatever. Like, you want to call a cat a dog? Will it sell more copies? Okay. It's a dog. You know, like that, that most of the time creators are simply, it's, it's a business. Anime and manga are a business, you know, for diehard fans, including myself, you know, when I was young, who, for whom anime and, and manga were an identity, it can be tough to accept this, but it is a business. And if something <laughs> does not make money, it, it, it's considered a failure and you won't get any more of it. On the other hand, if it makes a ton of money, it will continue forever, like say Pokemon, um, yeah. which is just as much anime as Escaflone or Gundam or anything like that. You know, it's just so. it's a part of, as we said, you said in the book, you used the word media mix. And the yeah. other one we see a lot is the production committees, yes. which it's like if you get a home run on a two of the three. So, for example, you have the anime, you have the manga, you have the light novel, you have right. the video game, you have whatever. It's like it or the figures or whatever. If you get maybe two of those five, maybe you have a home run because we're all in it together. Right. For yes. The investment. Yes. And then when all the stars align, like something, for instance, like Pokemon, like you're talking suddenly in its first year in North America, Pokemon made more than the entire video game industry globally put together. And not global, excuse me. It made more than the entire North American game industry put together just as one game. Well, I guess it was two, red and blue. But um, just because of that media mix, because everything was hitting, like all cylinders were hitting. And, and you know, originally, who knows? they didn't think anything of it. It's like, we're just no. going to put it on this dying system, the Game Boy, and yeah. stuff like that. And mm -hmm. then you look where it is now. It's like, wow. Yeah, well, it's a phenomenon. It's more than a phenomenon. It's almost like culture. And everyone said, oh, it's just a fad. It'll go away. Well, I think over uh, 20 years, well, not 20 years, but over 15 years, uh, it's more well, than a fad. The only thing that maybe became fads within Pokemon are just specific things. Like, yeah, like just yeah. one 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 part of the media mix, one part of the uh, one part of the uh, e ecosystem, but the I, title as a whole, the concept as a whole, it's endured. I, I think the only thing in my book that would be, that I would think of as a fad is maybe the Tamagotchi. The Tamagotchi oh. comes up as one point, and like that thing was huge in the late '90s, and now it's still around, but it's not anywhere near as as I. There's I something, yeah, you see, like I know we've been looking at Yokai Watch, and I think that ended up being a fad because it's just died out. You've seen the yeah, the show did, but that. and now I wonder. We were talking about Demon Slayer, and it'll be interesting to see how that goes because I think that's kind of in this fad-like state almost. Well, Yokai, Yokai have been kind of percolating in the in the back of of uh, of of like it was like the last frontier of unexported. Japanese pop culture when Hiroko and I wrote uh Yokai Attack the Japanese uh monster survival guide back in 2008 hard to believe is that long yes. ago um well, it's at 15 well I I I pegged your uh writing career as 15 years I don't I could yeah well I, you know I get more I, I more or less more or less because I think Super Number One Robot came out around 2004 I think. And then Hiroko and I did the Hello Please, which is all about cute mascot characters in 2005 or six. And then uh, eight. Sorry, I didn't say the whole title. No, 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 no worries. And then, and then Yokai Attack, uh, which, which spawned a, a two sequels came out in 2008 and Yokai were completely unknown then. Like you, it was actually considered very daring to use Yokai on the title. And we made a really big point in the book of not calling them demons or, you know, uh, goblins or ghosts or anything in in the book because they're a different sort of concept and now finally i think partially thanks to the groundwork that yokai watch laid 
Um, I think people are going to understand Demon Slayer when it comes to the States a little bit more than they might have had Demon Slayer come out, say, in 1999. Um, okay. Now, we, you know, we understand there are these kind of like Oni and like kind of, you know, Japanese kind of uh, supernatural presences that are different from the ones in our uh, in our mythology. And I don't know. I, and they I, can be in everyday objects and stuff like that. And it's yeah, like, yeah, definitely. You know, Actually, you know what I mean? And there, that's why you said there's there. You couldn't even count the number of yokai there probably actually are, right? Yokai is actually the word yokai. I always bring up as an example of this is what I consider the, the kind of highest art of localization is when not to localize a word at all. And yokai is the is a prime example of that because it doesn't easily map to anything in Western culture. So when you have cases like that, you know, like sushi, like you can translate sushi as raw fish on vinegar rice, but it's kind of boring. Whoops. Ooh. Sorry about that. That's my doorbell. Um <laughs> Or you could translate, you know, uh, an ancient warrior is samurai. But, you know, we call those things sushi and samurai because they correspond to very specific Japanese cultural concepts. Yokai, too. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's kind of anti-localization in a, in, in a good way. Uh, sometimes not translating a word at all and just letting it kind of hang there is the way to do it. And it'll be well, interesting then, to see if that then, works. Then, right. Yeah. Then, uh, then we under, start to understand another concept, and that adds to another language. Yes. In, some way, in its own ways it becomes part like sushi is very very much part of the english lexicon now yeah definitely and like i you know and, and bringing it back full circle to to pop culture we have absorbed so many lessons so to speak from japanese pop culture from the power-ups of video games to the you know to those city pop inflected soundtracks uh to all sorts of things that now it all seems familiar and almost nostalgic to us i've actually been really fascinated by the whole city pop boom because none of the city pop music you know maria takeuchi's plastic love and all of these different city pop channels you'll see on youtube none of it was broadcast in the states or north america anywhere in the 80s it was a purely japanese phenomenon but yet people are kind of weirdly nostalgic. It's like this, this pseudo nostalgia they have for it because all of the music in Famicom and Sega games was based on those kind of tracks. So there's a familiarity to city pop that we kind of absorb without ever actually listening to city pop music. Wow. And, and that's that kind of pseudo nostalgia is something I think you see a lot. It started with, with diehard fans of all sorts of Japanese pop culture, but now you're seeing it in society at large because how many of us grew up watching Power Rangers, playing Pokemon, Tamagotchi, you know what I mean? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, all sorts of consuming Japanese fantasies that now our fantasies have come to resemble Japan's in a lot of ways and the oh, way yeah. we consume well, things. Uh, yeah, plan, uh, what your last line in the book, a planet of dreamers made in Japan. Yes. Which I and thought was a great Trading idea. back and forth our cultural uh, ideas and stuff like that. And I think back to the video games again, and how 2D games and Nintendo games, and that's influenced quite a few at the beginning, indie developers and stuff like that. And I think about Shovel Knight in particular. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's um, a great example. Those guys that I remember giving to them and I've talked to them and stuff like that. But they, it was interesting, same generation and stuff like that as myself. But it's like, yes, it, it wouldn't run on an NES and all this other stuff. But it's what we saw in our eyes of what yeah. an NES game was through a modern lens and stuff like that, and how it's still able to do it in this day and age. Because remember, with the N64, PlayStation, and Saturn era, a lot of them were saying 3D games. We had to go to 3D games. And I remember the one thing I was a lifeguard, and it was like maybe 2000 or whatever. 
and someone saw me, I guess it was one of the kids saw me playing Castlevania on my Game Boy Advance. It was like one of those NES classic carts. And basically they said, what the heck is that? Like, this right. doesn't look good at all. Right. And I'm just thinking, I don't know, I didn't say anything, but I'm thinking to myself, what are you thinking? And I thought, well, this is great. It's like, but I'm great. It's come full circle in that it can be seen as an art form for 2D that, and stuff like that. And then yeah, yeah, yeah. Pixel art. art. Pixel art, oh, yeah. you know? And the right. glass. You know, Stardew Valley. Stardew Valley is another great example of that. I mean, that that guy is, is hugely influenced by... Uh, uh, you know, Animal Crossing, I guess, and and all sorts mm -hmm. of, of other Japanese uh, content that way, you know. And, and so we games, I know what uh, the great thing, too, is now they're being transported back to Japan because some, uh, for example, yeah. eight four I know has done Undertale and take it from the English and put it into the Japanese for Toby Fox and stuff like that. So it's great that it's now going the other way and there are right. other opportunities and stuff like that for us well, to show them what has inspired us from them. So it keeps on going in a circle. Yeah, so many definitely. definitely. Even been inspired by the West, of course. And so. Japanese love seeing what the outside world thinks of them. I mean, it's, Oh, uh, well, it's, uh, it's, you know, especially when something Japanese hits big abroad, it's always a source of kind of fascination here as to why it's hitting abroad. And right now the big discussion is that's kind of going on is, is demon slayer going to be as big of a deal in you know foreign markets as it was in japan um personally i don't think so <laughs> i don't think so either I, well thing. i just it's a great series i i mean it, it's really well done for what it is and i think very much an evolution of that whole jump uh style of of kind of storytelling but it's i don't think the pieces are in place to let it explode like it, it, it blew up here in Japan because people went to go see it in the movie theater in the middle of a pandemic. And I just don't, th I don't yeah. see that happening. Like if, if people won't go see Tenet in a movie theater, like they're certainly not going to go see Demon Slayer in a movie theater. Oh, so it, it topped, uh, what did it, it topped Prince? Was it Prince yeah. Mono? Uh, no, no, uh, uh, Spirited, Spirited Away. Away. Spirited Away. Like it, I think in the last few days, right? The first yes. run of Spirited Away was surpassed by it. And that's yes. in the middle of a pandemic and everyone's like, is insane it's like and i know the restrictions you guys had restrictions in movie theaters as well some yeah. of them were relaxed a bit and people were talking about that when that came out and it's kind of crazy how this all came together yeah well it, it helps i think that japan is, there was never any uh real dissent to toward or it was never controversial to wear a mask or socially distance there's a great oh. there, there's a great comment i think it was in uh, I, I forget where i read it. it was time magazine i think where an echo where one of the experts interviewed is like japan's been socially distancing for two thousand years like we bow we don't touch each other you know and we take our shoes off we go into houses and things like that which is really for, funny for, further to the point is masks aren't exactly like they're somewhat i have the impression japanese aren't a, a averse to wearing a mask no, they're quite used to it not at all i mean people wear them people people wore them when they uh have colds here and things like that that was like kind of considered common sense and etiquette so the idea that everybody has to mask up it's a pain in the ass like nobody likes doing it when they go outside is just kind of second nature here and although mm -hmm. japan is is not out of the woods at all yet in fact cases are on the rise here it's nowhere near as bad as it is in a lot of places in the United States, for example. Well, um, yeah. The U S is U S is, is one. It goes without saying, I'm afraid yeah. here, here in Ontario. And we constantly mention this on our show. Uh, the entire province has been put into a lockdown phase right, here. Right. So only yeah. central businesses are allowed to stay open. And yeah. 
And Japan never had that. There, there's no law in Japan that you can compel businesses to stay shut. You know, you just can't do that here um, for various reasons. But it's um, people, you know, tended to follow official directives, you know, That's more so than in the West. Like in America, it often seemed like people would deliberately go out of their way to defy a, official you know, uh, guidelines and things like that. Well, I'm going to go my own way. I don't trust this or like whatever it is. Whereas in mm. Japan, there's much more of a tendency to, well, if that's what the, you know, if that's what scientists say, you know, I, I guess I won't go out drinking tonight or whatever. So, uh, um, yeah. So I think it, whatever I, the case is, I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is not, not to, not to get into a big discussion about, you know, American, you know, <laughs> COVID-19 <laughs> responses or lack thereof. The Japan had more of a background where it was, possible to go to movie theaters without killing yourself and mm -hmm. i don't see that happening in the states anytime soon no it's well we, we, there's a long way to go i'm afraid yeah even even with the vaccine out there okay so you had me thinking when you talked about music for a couple seconds here so i want to yeah. go through some music points in in this <laughs> i know we're going a bunch of places sometimes like the book but in a good way i think the book in a good way too yeah um Small little anecdote, and this is a part of the book I personally found uh, interesting to read. Your little story about to Tomomi Kahara, the uh, the the singer, the mid nine mid nineties singer, and you laugh, yeah. because I think I know why. Yeah, well, she's a she's a kind of notorious. But anyway, go on, please. I, I see. I'll tell you the story of my own the first time I came across her, and it wasn't necessarily her. Um. Fan subs back in the day, I we I got a copy of the fan subs for Rudoni Kenshin, the television series. Yeah, yeah. And then at the very end, the fan subber decided to put a little Easter egg of sorts. They showed this musical performance. Yeah, it was a woman singing. Yeah. Hate to hate to tell a lie, and okay. then they revealed at the end of that little snip that the woman who was singing it was Meosukaze. She was doing a cover. Meosukaze was the was the was the voice actress. Or the actress, because of her Takarazuka days, she right. played Kenshi at the time. And she was doing a cover of Hate to Tell a Lie with the Max at the time. Okay. At the end of the year, like when we, we, I, I, we were still, we were able to get um, the Kohaku that year. Okay. In 97, at the end of the 97. And she, and then out came Tomomi Kahara with uh, TK himself. And they performed Hate to Tell a Lie. And then I figured out, oh, she's the original artist behind this song. And that's where I first heard about her. And right. then, then over the years, we start reading about all the things she got into. But it, it was just... It, well, the, it's a, the number it's a, one thing she got into was Hello Kitty. Yes. And that was... I thought it was funny that you mentioned that part of the story. Yeah, well, you can't, I, you, you, can't talk about, you can't talk about the rise of kawaii as an identity for adult women in Japan without Tomomi Kahara. Because she is the pop idol who embraced Sanrio products so thoroughly in her like in her rise in the in the mid '90s that it it's, it suddenly made it cool for every girl to to say that she liked Sanrio. Okay, you know. So there's the that what was the phrase uh, the the rise of the schoolgirl and then yeah the, yeah the co gals like there's a oh yes. a whole scene in it, well it, it's fascinating because the tastemakers of 90s Japan and 90s Japanese cities in particular were not men or boys it was young women and girls they and were they the were on pagers. 
Yeah, they were the, exactly. They were the, they were the early adopters of technologies that helped you communicate and things like they, they, it was girls who figured out how to jigger pagers, pocket pagers, pocket beepers, and turn these things from just standard, you know, they were designed to send phone numbers back and forth to be prototype, uh, uh, texting devices. So oh, they yeah. turned they turned pagers into these like texters. Basically, you would send each other these kind of coded text. Japanese in the Japanese language, numbers can be read phonetically, and so by sending numerical messages that aren't phone numbers and reading them phonetically, you can actually send messages back and forth to one another. Yeah, I, I've heard of that. I remember that concept. Uh, yeah, it was, a, it was yeah, actually and the precursor of emojis as well, yes. and stuff like that, so, and how girls, this yeah. developed. And then there was like almost this tech race to kind of add these elements in there yeah, for these yeah. girls in this demographic, and then into flip phones, and then how it progressed to the smartphone, the very first yeah. one for Apple, where they were great everywhere. But Japan, they flopped because yep. they didn't have the emojis. They didn't have the stuff that the other guys didn't. And it wasn't until 2011 on their virtual keyboard, as we said, that that came about because them and Google had to standardize everything. Yeah. Of course. And Sorry. the uh, and don't forget uh, selfies. Basically, you know, Japanese women were using these things called print club machines that had initially been made so salary men could take a picture and put it on their business card. And they okay. started using them to take these wacky photos of each other. And they had all sorts of filters you could put on the photos and stuff. And then they would trade them to each other and make these Facebooks. So this, this, literal books of, of stickers of, of their friends' faces and stuff. And that so became, you, can, it, you can literally make the argument that, that social media was, or the roots of it at any rate, were invented on the streets of, of Japanese cities by Japanese women, not by Silicon Valley, um, which well, is really interesting. Again, it, it's the it's the grassroots, right? Yes, it's sort of the grassroots. For reference, and um, please uh, pass this message along. Uh, me message along to um, to Hiroko Yoda. I appreciated the your her explanation, kind of differentiating ko kawaii in two types. Ah, like back in the uh, in, during the Japan right. Society of Dallas Fort Worth uh, video. Yeah, in, thank uh, you for watching. I'll tell her that. Thank you for. She'll be very happy that you watched it. No, I, I I appreciate it because like the the two types of kawaii in two perspectives, a, fem a female perspective which tends to be more main the hope the hopeful more mainstream idealized right. femininity like Hello Kitty, and then the male perspective which is the more let's say skivvy one I guess right yeah male gaze kawaii is how she puts it versus female gaze kawaii and like you know female gaze kawaii gives you things like you know fashion and it gives you things like you know of course hello kitty being kind of the ancestor of that and all sorts of other uh a kind of uh prettified girlified kidified uh uh sorts of a kind of filter that you put in the world where male gaze kawaii is is basically sexualized you know that's where yeah. You know, Lollicon, uh, Lolita Complex stuff being the kind of most notorious aspect of that, which is basically like pornography with a with a kawaii filter. Yeah, and that's why I said that said skivvy, a little yeah, skivvy. It is no, I mean, but you know, the the, the presence of of Lollicon in, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, was something that mm -hmm. kind of gave anime an edge in Japan in in the eighties, like that there was that there was always somewhere deeper you could go. It gave it a like, and and putting aside the morality of it, or whether it's healthy, or whether it's good, or whether it's bad. These are, you know, I, I putting that totally aside. Its existence 
kind of gave anime and manga culture or, or a, a depth that you didn't see in Western illustrated art. You know, like the deepest you could go there was like maybe to go to our crumb type stuff, you know, alt comics type things. But yeah, well, that's actual content that was considered dangerous, even in its home country. You know what I mean? Like that's very almost Gibsonian, you know, that this form of entertainment is so dangerous that it has to be banned or can damage you by, by looking at it. Um, well, you pointed, you, you pointed out the, uh, was it the U S comics code 1954? Yes. I mean, just coming back because you, when you just that little bit, you reminded me of that and how it kind of, how the U S kind of prevented itself from going that down that, that path, I guess, in some ways. Yeah. With, yeah. With well, you know, Japan had a much longer history of uh, mature uh, illustrated okay. entertainment than the West did. I ah, mean, U- okay. Ukiyo-e, uh, the woodblock prints, you know, Hokusai, the wave, you know, all of these sorts mm-hmm. of things, you know, that we're, that we're familiar with now as fine art were not produced as fine art back in the 19, uh, the, the 19th century and, and the 18th century. They were produced as, as ephemera, as disposable sorts of illustrations for, for books and things. Disposable is going too far, but as illustrations for, for books, uh, to be consumed, they were mass produced. You know, even even something like Oaksai's Wave that you would go to a museum to see today in a frame was not sold that way. It wasn't it wasn't produced as fine art. It was part of a series that people would buy to see these views of Mount Fuji um, as entertainment. Mm-hmm. So, and a lot, and there was an edgy form of, of woodblock prints. They're called shunga. Very very sexualized. I uh, think. I it, it was mentioned in an episode. Yeah, I mean, it's just it, they're they're well known. I mean, this isn't this isn't any kind of like you know great discovery was, on my part. It's it's a mm-hmm. it's well known that these shunga Japanese like sexual woodblock prints, and there were some of the things that the West found really shocking when they first saw them. And it was um, interesting too because in the 19th century, with the Meiji era and stuff like that, they were trying to westernize, and some of these industries, the woodblock and that were on the downturn, but because of the West and the fascination yeah. with the Japanese and Asia and stuff like that, they brought them up again and stuff yes. like that, which is well, kind it's, of it's, crazy how it all happened. With- it's also really funny to imagine that, you know, for all of the hand-wringing you see today over, oh my God, tentacle porn, hentai, like that <laughs> same conversation was being had back in like Vincent Van Gogh's era. You know, like, oh my God, like there's this beautiful Hiroshige of like some, some cherry blossom trees, but look, here's Hokusai doing like an octopus going down on a woman. Like this is like the, 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 one of, I think the kind of key differences between Japanese pop culture and Western pop culture is that in Japan, the refined and the vulgar have always existed side by side. I remember that line. And it's, it's really, really like Hokusai drawing pornographic woodblock prints did not diminish his reputation. If anything, it burnished it. And the same thing for Tezuka, who is doing these bizarre, like furry porn movies oh, on the side. You know, and then no, no, like no shame. I'm not, I'm not judging. I don't judge, but it's, you know, in the West, it would be very difficult to like Walt Disney doing Steamboat Willie. And then he's doing, you know, something else with a Willie, <laughs> like as a, as, a, oh. as an adult project is impossible <laughs> to imagine, but that was happening in Japan from the very start. So you, you had this riches. development thinking about because you think of Tezuka and where he started with from this pure stuff like that and how he railed against Gekiga and how by the end of the 60s and stuff like that he started getting into yeah. that even <laughs> well, now it's, it's kind of like spinal tap right yeah yes. no 
And it's funny because Cleopatra and A Thousand One Nights just came out in the West from Disco. Oh, yeah, yeah, the Blu-ray, yes. So I have to actually watch them. I have them in my hand now because I'm really intrigued to watch them because I have looked at Tizuka's work, of course, the normal stuff like Astro Boy and all that, but then also his Gekiga era stuff and even uh, Blackjack. So it's interesting to see the different visions he has at the different eras in that. Well, he was very flexible. I, I, his, um, and I think it's really telling that mainly his Gekiga stuff is what's remembered today, like Blackjack, like Phoenix. That stuff is mm-hmm. way more Gekiga influenced. And um, I, I, I make this point in the book. What we think of as manga today is really Gekiga. Um, in its in its original incarnation, the word manga almost exclusively meant kind of Tezuka style, bubbly Disney inflected cartoons. Whereas Gekiga had a kind of rougher hewn sort of uh, adult oriented aesthetic and the the manga that we consume that even is made for kids today, even stuff like, you know, starting with Mazinger Z in the 70s and going up to like jump stuff now is very much more from the Gekiga mold than it is from the manga mold. Very much more. Yeah, so once again, a repur- almost repurposing of the word, sort of. Yeah, I definitely. Guess. Well, and manga has just become, you know, manga is the kind of broad descriptor, and then you can get into, we don't really have the fine shading that you see. We, we're just starting to get it in the English lexicon, but Japanese have a much, much more fine-tuned way of describing, you know, yaoi and like, you know, shonen mm-hmm. and shoujo and like, you know, hey, 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 hey. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And fans know them, but in the States. It's not really a genre thing. It's something beyond that. Yes. Beyond just genre. So to answer your original question is like they had this kind of rich base of illustrated kind of know-how. And then, you know, in the post-war era, they never, ever had anybody putting the brakes on it like they did in the States. And, you know, with the Comics Code Authority and all of that. So as and and there was also in the states i think if you were an adult reading a comic book you were seen as a kind of a a you know i don't know if a low life is the right word but it was it was it wasn't seen as something that an adult would read or consume that was kid stuff whereas in japan adults consuming illustrated entertainment was something that had been done for centuries and, and so the idea that teens and then adults might read manga that that featured themes appropriate to them you know, they weren't reading Astro Boy. They were reading Ashtano Joe. Uh, you yeah. know, uh, they were reading Kamui, you know, which are thinly veiled, you know, political screeds, you know. So coming back to the, well, the, the upheavals of the 60s back then. Yes, exactly. Well, and I say this in the book, you know, in the West, it's, you know, the the, the kind of 60s hippies march to the beat of, of protest rock and folk. Whereas in Japan, that was metered out in the pages of comic books, manga. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. Man. That's right. Less, uh, I think less more mu- uh, music there, manga there. M- yes. Music here, manga there. Music right? here, manga there, definitely. I mean, manga oh, is so sick. key to the Japanese protest scene. And the interesting uh, yeah. thing was they still looked up and wanted to be the salaryman and stuff like that, be a part of that uh, group that was in the West. It was counterculture and stuff like that. Yeah. And it's, but you know, it, what the interesting thing is, is how many similarities you see, you know, like when, when Oshi Mamoru, when he was pressed about like what their goals were for being student protesters, it was just to destroy everything, to take the system down. And I think mm-hmm. you still see that kind of attitude uh, today among a lot of people who are upset with society. And I also think, you know, that whole, it might seem a little bit weird that, you know, these protesters just wanted to become salarymen and, and, and get back into 
you know, standard society and not be counterculture for their own sake. But, you know, I think you see that with a lot of the protests in the West, a lot of the anger in the West is not so much that people want to destroy the system as so much as they just, they want a bigger piece of the pie for themselves, you know, and if they had a job, if they were making a good salary, if they could afford a house, they wouldn't be out in the streets protesting. Um, you know, and so that's a, you know, that, that's kind of something that there are echoes of that, uh, in that, in the sixties counterculture, in the sixties leftist counterculture in the 21st century far right counterculture, which is the real counterculture. It's gone from far left to far right. And um, that sort of kind of ties into, well, yes. the last chapter, oh, I guess, but that's yes. another story altogether. Yes. The 4chan chapter. The 4chan chapter. Like going back to the book just for a little bit, like it, most of the middle chapters of the book, like the subject matter didn't really surprise me. Obviously, there are certain revelations that didn't dawn upon like most readers, probably. I, I know there were little stories there and nuggets that uh, were kind of new to myself and James. And right. But the concepts themselves, the subject matter themselves, we always knew about. But the bookends were the bookend chapters at the the. The bookend chapters, the first chapter about uh, about Tin Men, and yes. then the final chapter, the antisocial network. Those are the two most like interesting chapters to me mm. because that that was a complete. Those were completely new territories for for myself, and uh, especially that last chapter. Oh, yeah, a lot of people were shocked that I managed to connect tin toys to 4chan, but you know, <laughs> Ooh, yeah, you went from the physical all the way to the soft. I don't know how much, like, like. here's the, the thing about, I, I, as much as I would love to kit, talk about the antisocial network, that's a long, that's another discussion altogether. Yeah, yeah. And I think, yeah. like, I'd love to talk to you more at length about that another time. Sure. Maybe Any, anytime. I, to, to, just to, to wrap it up in, a, in an elevator pitch kind of nut, nutshell is, is, is that it's 4chan is where all of these threads of Japanese pop culture that had been kind of weaving their way through all sorts of aspects of uh, Western society kind of merged together and, and turned mm-hmm. from kind of streams into this kind of interconnected flood that was just m- mainstreaming Japanese pop culture from anime to music to whatever to hentai into the mainstream in real time no delay because people are just finding this stuff online in japan and, and putting it up on 4chan and stuff and how that inflected not only the internet discourse but political discourse because we basically live our lives on the internet now I know. I, so yeah that's what that last is, chapter is about yeah that last chapter and i have to probably read it a couple times over and i actually started to look up articles online this, this is obviously it's this has been going on for years. It's just that it was lost on a lot of people, but, right. and there, and there had long been articles actually on it. Uh, people, yeah, have, no. but that was just an eye opening thing. And I'm still trying to wrap my head around it, to be quite honest. It was, it, it was, it was a shock to me time. too. I, I wasn't, when I initially pitched the book, when I initially like plotted out the book that, that wasn't there. And, mm-hmm. and then okay, just because the, that's interesting. Yeah. the more research I did, the more I realized that just, you, you couldn't, you couldn't, you, you can't talk about Japanese pop culture in the 21st century without talking about the internet. And you yep. can't really talk about the internet in the 21st century without talking about 4chan. And then 4chan is literally based on Japanese software. It's, it's, a, it's a translation of the software used for a image board called Futaba Channel in Japan. And Futaba mm-hmm. Channel is an extension of a site called Ni, Ni Channel, 2 Channel, which is what mainstreamed the otaku into Japanese society via Train Man. 
yeah, uh, and- who first appeared on on Two Channel. And so, like, it was just really when I started researching Two Channel, I, I realized that everything that had happened in Japanese society vis-a-vis otaku in Japanese society through Ni Channel happened in the West with Four Channel. Like, and the Four Chan people who I spoke to didn't have any clue that they were literally repeating, like literally repeating the same footsteps that the Japanese had made 10 years earlier. Really? They, they would wow. be repeating whether, whether it's, you know, their, their, their first, like kind of these online, uh, in Japan, they call it a Matsuri where you kind of invade other sites and, and do kind of trolling and stuff like that to the rise of what's called the net right in Japan. 10 years later, mm. we had the alt right in, in the West, which, as we all know, emerged from uh, 4chan and uh, all and, sorts of different things like that. Yeah. I mean, as I said, this is. Yeah, it's another topic. It, it's it really, it's almost topic. a book in and of itself. And there oh, are yeah. entire yeah, books on that topic. And it was interesting us. just to quickly say on the first chapter, because in some people's minds, you could have almost started with the second chapter with Tezuka. And a lot of people have started there. But I think it was great to go after the war because people forget the place Japan was in. Yes. Where they weren't that futuristic place. They had been bombed into nothing. They had yes. nothing. But they still had their ideas. They still had the people. And that carried them through the boom uh, years in the bubble era, even to uh, today. And it was that thing of going through the scraps and then the toy car, the Jeep of uh, Kusage and yes. stuff like that. Well, I, I just, it, it really, image, it's so it telling, so, so telling that the first product of any kind Japan made after World War II was a toy. Mm-hmm. You know, that it wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't like a piece of furniture. It wasn't like a piece of electronics. It was a toy that, that Kosuke's Jeep is literally the first product that was manufactured after World War II. I have, I have not been able to find that's any. a few months after, really. Yeah, it was, it was. Carver had allowed and the, one of the things they allowed for export was toys and he was allowed to do that, but it was like, they had to market as from occupied Japan. And then yeah. throughout the book, some of the people like, uh, Akio uh, Morita, they changed their name to Sony, or then we have Hello Kitty with Shintaru uh, Suji, where he changed his name to Sanrio and stuff like that. So they became less Japanese, like ambiguous, so they could go around the world. So it's interesting how it all changes and stuff like that, right? And then you have Nintendo. It's like, screw it. We're Nintendo. We're Japanese. Deal with it, you know? Because it's like. (laughs) There was a little bit more like. Patience with it, I guess. If not well, it, times had changed, and also, yeah. you know, Nintendo knew that it had the better mousetrap, so to speak. Like, you know, its, oh. its video game system was so much better than the Atari Twenty Six Hundred or the ColecoVision or anything like that. Um, yeah, as it came in, and then they became the name in video games, right? The, the, yes, the the Donkey Kong. They, they became they the hundred pound Mario, gorilla. right? And yes, they had test run them in uh, Donkey Kong and stuff like that. And yeah, yeah. Roshi Yamauchi, he was uh, quite a fearsome fellow. He's differently different from the mold. Even uh, Akira Morita and uh, Shintaro Suji, like I look at all of them and they've been uh, had their own books and stuff like that. And you read about them and they're very different from the regular mold you think of for a Japanese CEO or businessman. Yeah. Stuff like that they have more entrepreneurial spirit you see in the West but maybe some of that is our reflection of our ideas in the West on them sometimes. Yeah. Well, the idea that Japan is this kind of monolithic, 
you know, kind of hive mind of worker bees is a Western fantasy. It's it's not true. There's all sorts of weirdos and iconoclasts <laughs> like working I, here I, I, and, I, and living here. And, you know, it's otherwise you wouldn't have tentacle porn. You know what I mean? It's like that, that's the kind of thing that doesn't come out of a society where everybody's thinking in lockstep. You know, that's some kind of crazy guy came up with this like weird, you know, his own vision, <laughs> you know, and I love that. That's 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 what I, you know, and that's what we all love about Japanese pop culture is that it's it's both refined and 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 kind of unique and weird at the same time it's so different from our own aesthetics weird in a yes. great way and in a stimulating well, way well but then there's crossroads coming i mean we we, we on the topic of shintaro, shintaro suji i mean we we over the course of the pandemic we heard that he has fully stepped down from yes the every, president of sanrio he finally stepped down yes in, in favor of his grandson this guy had some tough luck. I mean, mother yeah. dies when he was young. His son died. Yep. I, I suppose because that's why his know, son, his son was supposed to. His son was supposed to take over and and was uh, and was very much uh, doing a great job of running. I believe he was running Sanrio America at that time, and he just he was in his fifties. He just collapsed of a of a heart attack or something. It was just complete one of those. It was one of those things. It, it wasn't then, like he wasn't sick. It, it just happened. Yeah, and and then he had to hold out long enough to be able to pass it to his grandson. A successor, yeah, yeah, and his yeah, his grandson. His grandson's like in his thirties now, so he must have just been a little kid when uh, Suji's son died. You know, his story is fascinating. Yes, like like you you expressed it uh, obviously in the book, and then around the same time as I as we start to read it, all that begins to happen, and we we hear he he's he's finally retiring completely in full. And yeah, he's he, a, he's like, he really presided over you know this this huge chunk of of Japan's pop cultural rise, and uh, he's he's such a unique individual. I, I just I really you know it, it's people are shocked to hear that a guy is behind Hello Kitty. Um, oh yeah, and you, you paint a very fascinating picture of him. <laughs> and I think it's that idea of it came from his younger days of being able to celebrate his birthday, and that was not a thing in Japan. But because yes. of the gift culture, he was able to bring that forward. And then how that's transformed over the decades, we've seen Japan embrace Valentine's Day, create White Day, and then over the past decade, Halloween has been embraced, and all these other different Western holidays based on gift giving. Yes. Yes. And also he's just somebody who's very in touch with his, like his, his, his inner little girl, you know, he's unashamedly like, Oh, kawaii. You know, like his bedroom is covered in like pink, you know, like there's that, there's that scene at the very end of the chapter, which I, which I am uh, describing from a description that comes from his vice president at the time in the seventies, who was just shocked to see that this like 50 something CEO's bedroom is like all pink and frilly and like full of like bunnies and kitties and stuff. And, uh, you know, I think it's just a, a testament to, um, you know, uh, live your best life. You know what I mean? Like, you know, find what sparks joy in you and, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and chase it down. Popular catchphrase these days. Exactly. And another way that a Japanese fantasy is is inflecting, uh, you know, reality all over the world. Mm hmm. So. Well, I want to. Uh, well, as I said, um, maybe we should. I, I just kept yes. Yeah, so I just going to go. We can keep talking forever and ever. No, maybe that's no, no, a, maybe no, no, that's no, a I'm good point to stop. I'm, just, I'm not looking to cut off at all. It's just like I want to acknowledge your little bits and pieces from the book. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate you reading, and I appreciate you having me on. This is this has been really awesome. No, the, I, I, this is as I said. This is a real honor. This is a real honor for us. Sony. I want to touch on Sony because boy, have they made news in, on many different fronts sure. in the last um, last number of months. Obviously, the PlayStation is a their thing. 
here they uh <laughs> they basically took over the anime anime um North American anime industry sure. by uh, buying Crunchyroll a couple weeks ago, and which which surprised absolutely nobody. Right. Words came, and then because we kind of got a sense that this was like their their strategy would start to center on their on their anime operations. They have they have Funimation, they have Anaplex. Um, not many really knew about their about the Anaplex side until like well, like. But going back to Kenshin for just for a second, I didn't know Sony had an animation studio until I saw Kenshin. Right, that's the that's the thing, and not many would always. I mean, I think Sony now. Sony is just a, a good example of a company that has transitioned from hard to soft. You know okay. what I mean? Like they they yeah. and of course they're still making hardware today, like the PlayStation Five. Though that being said, the PlayStation Five was designed in America you know, by Silicon Valley engineers. It wasn't made in Japan. So like it's, it is, a, it's a Japanese game console with American DNA in it. And I think that's kind of the, what, you know, that's kind of a, a roadmap for what we're going to be seeing a lot of in the future, just like how you see crunchy, not crunchy roll, but well, you do see crunchy roll, but also Netflix, an American and- company underwriting Japanese animation, you know? So these lines between what's Japanese and what's not, or who's the fan, who's the domestic fan, and who's the foreign fan. They're all being blurred. Mm-hmm. And, Every, uh, yeah, yeah. There isn't otaku anymore. Everybody's an otaku. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. you know, when, when, grown, when grown men and women are going to see Avengers movies and, like, you know, squealing over Baby Yoda, <laughs> you're, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's very difficult to argue that against the idea that we're all otaku now. We are, you know, even people who don't identify as otaku. Um, they have that kind of DNA in their, in their, in their fantasy lives now. And, uh-huh. uh, yeah. So uh, give me a, th- uh, I want to play a, uh, just pick your brain for a second then on uh, just coming back to Sony. You said in, in the epilogue of the book, Sony had all these pieces to be able to make it work, but somehow they were, they missed being the leaders in the smartphone revolution. Mm-hmm. And like, it had me wondering how did it get that way. Well, I mean, and it was I have my thoughts. Yeah, what, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? My my bounce was, um, well, over over the past couple decades, just as you just alluded to, they moved away from the hardware into more soft power, so into the into the more content stuff. But I think you made me think about the the um story of game boy uh, of the game boy too and this is like a bunch of random thoughts but maybe they'll all come together in some form sure like game boy success was not necessarily because it was technologically advanced it was because it was simple enough and easy for easy for anybody to pick up and portable and that's how Nintendo became a, a thing in terms of portable gaming. They didn't Nintendo for its part never really like, especially these days and and in the in the portable sphere, they didn't have always have the most technologically advanced items. But oh they always no, had no, a no, no, They always had a quirkiness that appealed. Oh, maybe yeah. that maybe to that that kawaii sense, but it, 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 and that's what made it so successful over yes. thirty years in the portable and probably and now it's has its own space with 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 the switch right now contrast this to where sony tried uh, with their portable stuff they tried to have the most advanced thing with the psp and uh, and the vita and and i know it was criticized because it lacked quirk it tried to be um 
a carbon complete carbon copy of its console systems. Yeah. And maybe that's what what people weren't looking for at the time. No. Now put that all together. And I'm sorry, I'm no, no, I'm no, sorry no. I'm getting a bit on a tangent. I just want to see what you think of this. Put that all together and then contrast this with Apple. Now, constant criticism of, of the iPhone is it's not the most technologically advanced. It doesn't have the latest features that the latest right. Android would have. But that wasn't always the point. And, and, they always, and Apple always liked to say, we pride ourselves with the about the optimization with features, with our software, into the hardware. So, so the op that optimization just leads to something, uh, an interface that just tends to be so buttery smooth. And if Sony was trying to accomplish the same thing, I'm not totally sure they would have tried to go with that concept. They would just be always trying to get the most technologically advanced, but it would always be problematic. And the experience with their portable PlayStation systems, like the PSP, like the Vita, may have given them pause for thought. Well, you know, the, the Walkman was not a technologically advanced object. It was only the Walkman succeeded because it was easy to use and it answered a need that we didn't know we had. Mm -hmm. Um, and the reason that the Walkman and the, and the Game Boy and the iPhone came around, came about in their forms that they did is because there was a, a person who had vision running the company and who had a, you know, idea that they wanted to make something that was more than a product, but also part of a lifestyle. And ah. I think when you don't have that vision, it's very easy to get bogged down in specs, specifications, you know, oh, wow, this is the this is the, the most cutting edge thing ever. But the average person doesn't really care about the specifications of a processor. They don't care about the audio specs. They don't care yeah. about, you know, X, Y and Z. They just is it easy to use? Does it make my life more fun? That's, and that's why I was. Thinking, I yeah. And if the answer to that question is, you know, oh, it's the most high tech thing in the world. But no, it doesn't make my life interesting or more fun. You know, then you. It's not going to succeed. It's not going to succeed in a mainstream way, in the way that like a Game Boy or a Walkman or an iPhone did. And right. I think I think you're right, actually, that like there there was no Sony is also a huge company. It, it was much. It, 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 there's a lot of different departments and people competing and internal politics, and especially after uh, Akio Morita died. In mm -hmm. 90, uh, after he retired, I should say. And, I, and I'm glad you told his story because um, I draw parallels between. Uh, Morita, uh, Akio Morita and, um, Steve Jobs. Oh yeah. And then I have general, other, uh, gentlemen in that equation, um, off the top of my head, but the other, the other half of Sony. Oh, then, oh, Ibuka. Yeah. Basically yeah. It had, basically Sony had its own version of Waz as well. Yeah, I know it, it totally <laughs> did. And you know, so did Honda, Honda, like, you know, Honda is named after Soichiro Honda, but he was the engineer guy. He wasn't the guy who made. Uh, Honda into a, a global presence. That was the actual president of Honda who kind of stayed behind the scenes and, and, you know, let, let Soichiro Honda uh, be the kind of engineering face of the company. So that, that kind of, that kind of thing where you have the kind of the idea guy or gal and the, and the CEO guy or gal is a, is a kind of winning combination in a lot of places. Um, but once those people retire, it's very difficult. You're kind of coasting because you, you, you lose the vision in a lot of ways. Which and is why I, happened. yeah, I mean, Apple is, I think, has arguably been coasting. I mean, I haven't seen any need to get a new iPad or a new, like, I, when my, when my 
iPhone wears out, I get a new one. But like, you know, when mm-hmm. a new one comes out every year with new specs, I'm not like, oh my God, wow, like this one plays in 8K instead of 4K. Like I don't, I go, that's why I, I don't go, care. That's why I get mine. Right? Why not uh, keep it? <laughs> you know, I, 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 we haven't seen a company come out with anything as life-changing uh, as the iPhone or the Game Boy or the Walkman recently. Um, we've seen a lot of, you know, part of that's because global human culture has been put on pause for the last year. But, yeah, uh, right. you know, but it's also because we're more transitioning into this virtual space, like humanity is increasingly interacting on a virtual space. And Japan was really ahead of the curve in, you know, the virtualization of human uh, satisfying human desires, all sorts of desires, not just, you know, our, our, our wants, but also needs like, you know, sexualized anime and things like that. Oh, boy, um, yes. You know, so like Japan has been ahead of the curve and that's why, you know, we just continually uh, respond to the things it makes because of that being a few clicks ahead of us on the timeline, uh, demographically well, yeah. and, and societally. Then we're and it, it, it's seen something that we're going to see here in a couple decades, like like the aging, like aging populations, yeah. I suppose. And we I know and I know you and Fred a couple weeks ago talked about robots as well yes. and, and, re- and, and show the one photo and stuff like that the greeting robot and it's interesting that technological thing where technology is taking the lead but that isn't always the case as we've seen with the pandemic with japan because a lot of us were working from home we got the technology in that but in japan they're now playing catch-up it's interesting to see how yeah. they're going to adapt to this new world especially the older managers where they expect people in their seats well, that's one for that's one for another podcast. That's for sure. What's yeah, going to happen in the sure. future? Um, I'm glad you mentioned. Like, I didn't know about the Silicon Valley uh, development of PS5 yeah. because it, it. I remember you at we in the epilogue you mentioned about Xbox cracking the jet, cracking the code in terms of Japanese dominance, and now sure. it's very much a player. So I'm just glad you mentioned. I'm just glad you mentioned that, but it also says a little bit about where Sony really is these days. And uh, you mentioned about the internal politics of Sony, and I'm and there's a big part of me wondering how that'll eventually play into all their all their anime acquisitions now, because you hear about well, um, you hear about Funimation and they the way and they operate one way, and then Anaplex they operate another way, and then now you put Crunchyroll Crunchyroll now into the fold and see where that eventually starts to go. So. Yeah, it's, Sony, it's, Sony is just one of those. No, it's just we're, we're, we're in a completely new phase like that I, I could never have imagined when I was a kid when you would just get Robotech on TV or like Star Blazers or whatever. Now you mm-hmm. have all these big players in the space that are funneling huge amounts of money into producing content that's intended to be consumed all over the world, not just in Japan. And, uh, I, you know, I, I think that there's been some kind of discussion online that maybe like netflix is taking the japanese-ness out of anime i don't think that's going to happen no. I, I really don't it, think it it's going to happen it's you see things like a gretzko being like huge hits in in the west the sanrio character about the red panda uh, mm-hmm. who's, who's yeah. lady dealing with japanese office lady politics how did this show become a hit abroad i, I don't get it I mean, it's cute it's awesome just very and japanese in, uh, some of their next ones that they were talking about for me, uh, Romai, which is, uh, yeah. be an interesting one, one you wouldn't expect from them or that they're working to bring out uh, house husband way. The house husband, uh, as well, which will be interesting to see how that plays out. But they, even some of the creators like be, uh, the beginning and then some of the 
other ones, a lot of the creators said they said they gave them carte blanche and said, well, do what you want. And some of them are now thinking of different things. It's like, well, what would that international audience want? And not just what their home market wants, which they never always thought about. So it's right. interesting how this all plays together, right? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where where it goes because we're totally in in a new mode right now. You know? Yeah, and for, as I said, and for better or worse, we'll just see how uh, how all this begins to shake down. Well, we'll check back in twenty years from now when I write Pure Invention Two, and <laughs> and we'll and we can have the follow up conversation then. Huh? Oh uh, well, I, I I'd like to think we can follow up a little sooner. Anytime, actually. anytime. No, um, seriously, I had a great time. Feel free to feel free to call I, I me. I want to talk with you about um like. Maybe after the inauguration, and as as we, maybe we learn sure. to make more sense out of two chan and four chan. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'd I mean, love to continue having that conversation anytime, uh, anytime. Yeah, but, I'd um, I'd love to I'd love to keep going now, but you know, it's been two hours. Oh, I think we'd better. Well, we, uh, we're almost two hour. Like it's an hour yeah, forty. Yeah, I think yeah, an hour and forty. I think we should probably we could, save it we for, could go for a while. But um, I know we all have other things to do, um, like watch more anime. Oh, well, you know what my watch is right now? My current two watches on Netflix right now. Okay. And, and this is, and now I'm talking as the consumer because I, my, my um, Crunchyroll subscription actually renewed just before Christmas. And oh, I didn't great. realize it happened. And, and, I, and I haven't watched it as much. But my two, my two present um, Netflix watches, one is Shinya Shokodo, the original seasons of Midnight Diner. Ah, Midnight and, Diner. Yeah, yeah. And I think, and somebody, I think in your, uh, in responding to your, um, on Twitter said, maybe the algorithm does work because Netflix pick, decide to pick up the original three seasons of it after producing the last two themselves. I, you know, okay. I will, I will just say this real quick cause I do have to run, but I just did a panel discussion in Japanese. So unfortunately it's not available in oh. English with the, uh, head of non-anime programming for Netflix Japan. Um, okay. A guy named uh, Taro Goto. And he and I did a talk for the Japan Foundation here in Tokyo. And uh, it was very obvious from, you know, just our conversation on stage and, and just what I heard there that they're, they're, there's, they're making things, they're, they're not trying to dumb things down for the West. They're actually doubling down, if anything, on that. If something is a hit in Japan for Japanese audiences, it will probably hit abroad, which is okay. where you get things like this new Alice show. Um, mm -hmm. which is like unabashedly oh. Japanese set in Tokyo, set in this kind of urban environment with young people, like, you know, in this kind of Gantz style battle unfolding, at least as far as I can tell, I haven't seen it yet. Okay. Um, so I don't yes, think uh, my cousin's into that show, by the yeah, way. Yeah. It's, it, you know, it, it's, I can totally see it taking off abroad. And now we're in this, we're in a new world where the Japanese-ness of something is not, uh, necessarily holding it back. In fact, it, it, it might be a sales point. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Other for me, and my other show right now is James mentioned it to me, uh, recommended it. It's Great Pretender, but that, uh, uh, that's another story altogether. I get the feeling I'll start belting out uh, Freddie Mercury a bit later <laughs> on. <laughs> I've actually I've been liking a lot of the Netflix produced anime show. We like Japan Sinks twenty twenty. I loved Devilman Crybaby. Um, oh, you know, there, there's lots oh. of great stuff on there. So, as, as a fan of o of the Ocean's Eleven series of movies. Uh, Great Pretender was a no brainer for me. Oh, got it. It, has, it has the same smart, uh, smart dialogue in many ways. Okay. Excellent. Um, oh, I guess, uh, I guess we're going to finish. Up. Yes. We keep trying to finish. Don't we? <laughs> we can go forever, but maybe we should cut it for now. Cause um, as I said, the, the next part would be 
another conversation and maybe we'll catch yeah, up at another. Well, I'll leave it to you. Let's, let's just keep the conversation going behind well, the scenes. We can always keep the conversation going. And uh, hopefully um, I'll put up this photo. I'll put up the photo of uh, you and Peter Barracon. Cause as I said, that was a really cool photo to have seen. Oh, great. Well, good. By, by, by all means. Book. And um, means. as I said, as I said, a real pleasure, a real, real pleasure. Well, it was a pleasure being here. Thanks for having me. I, uh, I really enjoyed um, it. Let's stay in touch. We will. We will. Um, uh, oh, but one last thing. Uh, where do we? Uh, where can we uh, find you online? Just quickly uh, before we. Go That's tonight. a smart thing, isn't it? Huh? I'm supposed to be promoting. Yeah. Look at this. How authentic is this? I forgot to even promote my book. So yeah, you can. I'm, I'm, Once again, Matt Alt is the author of Pure Invention: How Japan's Pop Culture Conquered the World in uh, in Fine Bookstores Everywhere. Um, yes. Where do we? Uh, and you- you can find me. I'm on I'm on Twitter, Matt underscore alt. I'm on Instagram, alt Matt alt. I'm on Facebook. I'm everywhere you are. Uh, just just look for me. I'm at mattalt.com. Uh, find me. Talk to me. I love I love interacting with readers and, and fans and and freaks and and furries of all stripes. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess we'll put our, our we'll, we'll put the contact information for this show here. So uh, anime roundtable at gmail.com is our email address. And we're on Twitter and Instagram at anime roundtable and anime roundtable.com for uh, full show notes and past episodes. Now I can s- seriously say Matt Alt, this was a real pleasure. And uh, that's all we got for this episode. Oops. No, go that's on. all we got. Oh, sorry, Matt. <laughs> we'll end some point. Oh, let's just keep it going. I'm loving this. No, no, I'm just we finish it out. You finish it. That's all we got for this episode. Thanks for listening.